Hi, this is Ariana Roberts, and you're listening to Arcana Imperii. Today, we're going to be talking to Laura Edelson. She is a Ph. candidate at New York University's Tandon School of Engineering. She is working on New York University's Ad Observatory to study political ad biases in Facebook. Prior to studying at New York University, she worked at Palantir as a software engineer. We will now go to the interview. to this podcast. Sure thing, it's a pleasure. It's a really great honor to have you as a guest. So there's been a lot of news about the Facebook lawsuit against NYU's Ad Observatory to stop your research. I know you can't speak about any details of the case because of this ongoing litigation, but can you let us know directionally if you'll comply with the cease and desist? So, um... I really, as you said, I can't comment on legal matters, and there's no actual litigation yet, but no, we will not be complying with this cease and desist. We feel that as independent researchers, um, doing so would sort of compromise, compromise what we owe to the public. So what is universal digital ad transparency, and why is it important? Yeah, so we and quite a few other researchers in this field believe that all digital ads and their targeting should be made publicly transparent. We think this because at this point we've just seen so many problems with um, housing or employment ads being targeted in discriminatory ways. Um, Obviously in the political ad ecosystem, I think everyone is well aware of the problems with uh, both targeting that is probably as being targeted in ways that people would not be comfortable with or just messages that contain false information or misleading in other ways. And universal ad transparency would allow researchers and journalists to have better access to find these problematic ads and to report them. So with your research on political ads, what exactly have you been trying to find out? Yeah, so the goal of my research, the ultimate goal, is to develop better methods to identify and mitigate political ads that contain misinformation or are misleading. And along the way, what we've had to do is develop extensive analysis pipelines that are also pretty useful to help journalists and just regular people understand political advertising more broadly. So one of our earlier podcast guests was Professor Moon Dutchin of Tufts University, and she came up with a sort of mathematical way to quantify the amount of how gerrymandered a district is. So is there a quantifiable way to measure how biased an ad is? Hmm, That's an interesting question. Um, We don't have a metric for bias specifically. We do a few different things, though. Um, So... As I mentioned, the ultimate goal of our research is to develop better methods to identify uh, misinformation or content that is misleading. And we do know that there are certain trends. So, for example, one of the things that we've been seeing quite a bit in this election is there are quite a few ads that are, um, how to explain this? There are quite a few ads that are just denigrating our democratic system as a whole. They're saying things like the election will be stolen. Uh, They're saying things like there are mobs coming for you, things like that. And the way that we've learned how to identify those is 
so one of the many analysis steps we take in our pipeline is we classify ads by their topic. So we've built classifiers that look at the text of an ad and can say, okay, this ad is about healthcare or it's about voting or it's about immigration, for example. So we actually have a topic that is about democratic norms. This is a topic we've had for a long time and it's typically about, you know, really boring things like, um, you know, for this state uh, ballot measure to expand the Supreme Court, you know, it would catch that kind of thing. It ca- it's meant to catch sort of rules and regulations next day. But what we've seen is that that category has really exploded. There are many more ads that are about that. And then where we know, okay, these are the ones that may need some enhanced screening, is something else we do is we do a sentiment analysis of all ads. We have a machine learning process that looks at their text and tries to evaluate, is this ad very positive? Is it very negative? And how intense is that positive or negative emotion? So something could be like saying that something is very bad, but saying it in very non-emotive language and that would be not very intense or it could be saying something was negative but in like a really emotionally intense way so those are some of the differences there and so what we know we have to look for now is we have to look for ads that are are very strongly negative using very emotive language about democratic norms and then we know that those kinds of ads probably need a human to look at them so what are the biggest like dangers of these ads? I mean, you mentioned these, they're questioning like our democratic norms, but what are, how has it really changed politics or has changed the world right now? Yeah, so it's a little, it's a little difficult for me to say long-term because we only have political ad data for the last few years. But what we are seeing is there certainly is an increase in ads that are uh, strongly polarizing. So, you know, this is a tactic that only a few advertisers were using in, in 2016 and 2018. You know, maybe a few, few more people adopted it, but it was still not widespread. And now what we're seeing is that just many advertisers took a look, look at this technique of using content that was strongly negative about not just candidates, but the system as a whole. And, and this topic is being adopted much more widely. So it's no longer just a matter of finding, you know, the one or two bad actors. It's, this is something that is becoming really widespread to just polarize and enrage. So is the polarization in our politics right now, is it caused by the ad spending? Or are they just taking advantage of the fact that we're already polarized? That's a really good question. It's difficult to tease those two things apart. If I were guessing, I would say that it's mostly the second in the sense that we were moving toward being more polarized no matter what, but the political polarizing ads that we have seen are gasoline on a fire. And they are, they are taking advantage of our pre-existing polarization and they are making it worse. So you also mentioned how there's a lot of misinformation within um, political ads now. So when a company puts out like sort of this fake um, information, they're open to all this litigation. So are there any protections for putting out fake or misleading political ads? Because it, it seems like there's a lot of fake information in political ads, but nobody is being punished. 
so generally speaking, no. And so we don't have the extremely strict libel laws in the United States that, for example, Britain does. So the consequences of making false statements are just not that severe in the United States. Uh, Facebook, which is a platform I primarily study, has started banning some false pieces of false information that have fact checks, but I've never seen them actually take action against an advertiser. So if you're an advertiser and you run ads that have false information, it's not like Facebook will ban you or anything like that. Oh, that's interesting. So do you think, since you're saying that, you know, Facebook isn't really doing much with this, do you think that social media companies are able to self-regulate or do we need like a third party or like governmental regulation to sort of prevent this from happening, these biased ads? So even social media platforms themselves these, these days are calling for regulation because I think I think it has become very clear that self-regulation is, is not really working. So there is some legislation that, that has been proposed, most notably the Honest Ads Act, that would address some of the problems that we're talking about. But honestly, probably more is needed. And I think one of the things that I take very seriously as a responsibility is making sure that when it is time to, to draft that you know, those laws and to draft that regulation, that we actually have enough data to make sure that, you know, that those regulations are sensible. Information technology was like sort of seen as a real portal for this transparency in politics and government. So do you think it has succeeded in that? Or do you think that it's making things more opaque now? It's making things worse? You know, I, I think what it has really opened up is the potential for transparency. I think a great case in point here is the Freedom of Information Act, um, which would not have really been practical to implement before digital records, for example. So I think that's an example of that potential fulfilled. Uh, the fact that we all have records to request, we all have the ability to request government records is remarkable. Um, but that said, I think it has also created many op opportunities for obfuscation. It's now just much easier to create a flood of information. And this is where there is a meaningful difference between transparency and usable transparency. And that's where I think more computer scientists need to work to fill in the gaps. So how has the, has the COVID pandemic affected the effectiveness of Facebook ads in this election since we're spending more time online or has it had like no effect on it? You know, again, that's hard to say because I don't have a comparable 2020 election without COVID. Um, but I think what I can say is the pandemic has certainly opened up many opportunities for misinformation and doubt that would not have otherwise existed. Um, one of the things that we, and I know that Facebook as well, spent a lot of time on was just making sure that ads about voting were clear and effective and that we removed, we got ads that were misleading, 
or just flat out falls off the platform as quickly as possible. Um, but the reason that there was so much opportunity for doubt was because of COVID, because so many people are voting by mail, which is a system that they weren't familiar with, because many polling locations are different than they, than they are in normal years, or there just aren't any in some, in some places where, you know, people who have been used to voting in one place their entire lives, uh, that, voting that polling place is closed so i think because of the uh the uncertainty and the doubt there is just so much more opportunity for for misinformation so according to firm tracking analytics more than a billion dollars has been spent on just 13 states for tv ads and less has been spent on facebook ads so like which one is more important is like our facebook ads very important right now or is it more TV ads? Or is it just because there's a different reach multiplier for the Facebook ads than the TV ads? Well, I think it's actually more that those two mediums are effective at doing different things. So the thing you have to remember is that when you see a Facebook ad, there is a button that you can immediately click to take an action. And that is not something that you can do on TV. So, mm-hmm. for example, if you want to raise money, Facebook ads are an incredibly effective way of doing that because not only can you can you just say, click this button to donate, but you can also really get great feedback on what messages work and encourage people to donate and which don't. So not only does, a, does someone who might donate have an immediate action that they can take, but you can get really immediate feedback on what works and what doesn't. That's just not something that's possible with uh, television broadcast ads. That said, if you're trying to just send out a message, TV can be a great way of getting just like a message to introduce, your, introduce yourself as a candidate or encourage people to vote. It's a great way to get out a broad message like that to a lot of people in a very effective way. Oh, so Facebook ads are like more micro-targeted. I mean, so one, that's true. Uh, you can, it's just much easier to serve an ad that is really tailored to a small number of people on Facebook. Um, but also it's easier to track, right? You can see how those people responded to the ad, whether they watched the video whether they click through to your site in a way that you can't with any other any other kind of ad. That's interesting. I remember in the um, presidential election of 2012, Obama had this team of like data scientists working on Project Narwhal, which worked on like voter propensity and micro-targeting ads to decide like if they're sending an ad to one district or another. And then Mitt Romney also copied this with Project Orca which also did micro-targeting. So has these kind of, um, using this data science to target ads, has this become table stakes for elections now to oh, target? Uh, sorry. Oh, yeah, no. absolutely. This is, um, this is something that not only every political advertiser, but every serious Facebook advertiser does. So is the danger of this targeting ads to specific groups that politicians can now send out like racist dog whistle messaging to specific narrow base without the fear of turning off more like a more general audience like you would see in like a TV ad which would reach a general audience. 
So, yeah, that's certainly one of the concerns. Um, We've actually seen something slightly different in practice. Um, In practice, what we're finding is more that candidates will broadcast a really negative general message about how, um, you know, the entire other party is terrible and, you know, you just shouldn't vote for them no matter what. They will target that message that is highly negative to one group of people that they know that they that they know that they know don't like them and they're they're trying to dissuade them from liking the other person. And then they'll target the the positive ads about themselves to the people that they that they think like them. And it's not quite that they're sending conflicting messages. Those two things aren't conflicting, but the tone is very conflicting. Um, one reason why they might be doing this, although of course I couldn't say for certain, but one reason would be that we know that um, we know that voters punish candidates who run negative ads. We know that in general voters don't like that. But if your negative ads are only being shown to people who you don't think are likely to vote for you anyway, then it probably doesn't matter. And all your goal is in that case to, to dissuade them from voting at all. Oh, okay. So by targeting this like negative ads to a smaller audience, is that creating like a sort of more fervent group of supporters, sort of like their own private two minutes of hate? Um, hmm, I don't know if I'd quite put it that way. Um, although we do see a similar phenomenon there. What we, what we also see is that advertisers, and maybe this is closer to what you're asking about, uh, so something else we do see is advertisers who are very extreme, and this is actually usually not candidates, this is usually other outside groups that have some kind of very extreme point of view, um, they're pretty careful to only target their base with most of that extreme messaging. And the reason that they do that is that uh, that content that is the that is the sort of fringiest that is least likely to be palatable to a mainstream audience is also the most likely to be reported by social media users. So social media users can uh, often report content that they find objectionable. But if you only send your you know strongly negative, strongly polarizing message to people who already agree with you they are much less likely to report that content as being offensive. That's interesting. So when people actually do like report an ad, what is really the process that these social media companies have once this ad is, has been reported as being politically biased? Well, we don't really know for certain because uh, Facebook and most platforms are not really transparent about that process. But I think what we what they have said is that if an ad is reported by some number of users, it will go to some kind of manual review. Um, it's entirely possible that there's also some other cutoff where report where if an ad is reported by many users, it will get taken down no matter what. Um, in general, you have to remember that these ad delivery systems were not built for political ads. They were built for ads for T-shirts and mail delivery kits. So a lot of the processes that you see about, you know, about ad delivery are 
really, you need to think of them through the lens of the platform's interest in serving people ads for things that they are, for consumer products that they might be interested in, that they like to see. So they really have an interest in making sure that if a lot of people don't like seeing an ad, that it goes down. Mm -hmm. So you were kind of mentioning before that the UK sort of doesn't have this problem as much. So does that mean that like this is a uniquely American problem or is this a problem like internationally because these companies are multinational companies? Oh, this is definitely an international problem. Um, the UK does not have this problem to anywhere near the degree we do. Uh, I'd say that that's actually more an effect of their um, very strict laws around campaign spending than anything else. But some of the other countries that really suffer from this are places like Myanmar, the Philippines, Bolivia, and several countries in Northern Africa as well. There's a lot of countries where there is a, you know, a really vibrant tradition of political speech, but also really, unfortunately, strong tradition of violence around elections. And I think that's where this problem gets gets to be the worst. I think that, though, in general, what we think of... Sorry, this is actually kind of a complicated question. What we know from an information warfare perspective is that the countries who are most vulnerable to these kinds of attacks of that we think of as information attacks targeting elections, the countries that are most vulnerable to them are liberal democracies that have both free and fair elections and also a strong tradition of free speech. That's where there's both the uh, the sort of window of time where if you can sway a lot of people to your perspective, you can make a change in government. But then also uh, with a free with a tradition of free speech, there's a window for things like propaganda campaigns, misinformation campaigns. So how do you balance between, you know, not monitoring speech too much through the ads? and this, you know, preventing this sort of misinformation campaigns? Well, that's the hard part. So the answer is we don't quite know yet. And I and a lot of other researchers are racing desperately to develop some techniques to do that. And some of my, some of my research is built around the idea that we can identify patterns of, you know, what is currently, you know, patterns that current misinformation is centering around. And for this election, a great, for example, would be highly negative ads about democratic norms. And then have those, have those categories of ads that are, you know, highly negative around democratic norms in this case, but it might be something different in the future, um, given an extra round of human, human review, right? Just to make sure that in those cases, authors are representing their identity uh, correctly, that they aren't misleading users and they aren't making false statements. So a lot of my work right now is just built around identifying and screening um, those problematic areas. I would say in general though, this is a big part of why we think we need universal ad transparency because we need so many researchers working on this problem. It's an unsolved, hard technical problem and the platforms can't do it by themselves. 
So why aren't a lot of researchers working on this right now? Um, is it, or like, and what are the difficulties of being a researcher researching this problem? So researchers need data and researchers need time. I know it seems like this problem has been around for a long time, but the data set that, you know, that we need to work, to, to work on this, the da- those data sets have only started to be made available in 2018. And frankly, they're not complete enough for us to really do our, do our work in an unencumbered way. Um, it's really difficult to build techniques to, and, and methodologies to identify political ads when you don't have non-political ads, for example, because you, you know, when you're building a classifier, uh, you often need both positive and negative examples as just a, for, as just an immediate, uh, place where the current situation is not really adequate. So there's that. And I'd say that researchers are getting into this area, but you know, it's, it's, it's such a new problem and we just don't have enough data yet. So it's going to take time. Hmm. So for this election, I mean, you, you recognize that this is, I mean, you said that this is like a very new problem. So has this election, has the use of political ads changed from past elections? Oh, yes. It's increased dramatically. Um, I read a comparison just to 2018, which is the only other election that I have data for. And between twenty, in between 2018 to 2020, uh, at least Facebook ad spending so far has increased uh, 300%. Wow. So why has there been such this increase in Facebook ads and who's really increasing it? Is it is it like both parties are increasing it or who's doing the most amount of Facebook ads? I think I saw on your um your website that um it did like a breakdown of who's spending on Facebook ads. Yeah, it's everybody. Um to be to be perfectly frank, it is this is a bipartisan phenomenon. There's no, there's no, you know, one party is doing this more than the other effect, um, other than just, you know, in the margins. I think some of what's happening is some spending is being diverted from other platforms to Facebook. That might be a temporary effect because of COVID and because of how much we are now living online. But it's possible that, you know, this is something that will continue to increase. We just won't know until we see what future cycles look like. Well, yeah, I mean, definitely we'll have to see in the future. Um, I guess my final question for you is, do you have any advice for girls pursuing STEM careers? Yeah, keep doing it. Um, I would say that I really appreciate the ability to work on hard problems that don't yet have answers. And I think something else I'd encourage people to do is, you know, one of the great things about careers in, in STEM is that, you know, they, they're often just fascinating, fun jobs to have. And, you know, the, the work you put in when you're in school is just so worth it because when you're through on the other side, all those people who, you know, weren't willing to put in the work in, you know, in all those math classes and all those engineering and coding classes you know, they're off doing other things, but you are left with some of the most fun, most interesting uh, jobs. And, um, 
that's not to knock anyone who is more into the arts because they're going to be really passionate about whatever they're doing. But if you think that, you know, science, uh, if you think that engineering, those kinds of fields are interesting, then the work is just so worth it. Well, thank you so much.